the tyranny of which majority? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Travis Smith. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Travis Smith. Travis received his PhD from Harvard University and is Associate Professor of Political Science at Concordia University in Montreal. His research interests include early modern philosophy, religion and science, politics, fiction, and popular culture. His publications include examinations of the ideas of Francis Bacon, Thomas Hobbes, and Alexis de Tocqueville. And he has contributed to the popular press in venues like The Weekly Standard, Entrepreneur, and Convivium. His other publications on liberal education and on relationships between politics and literature include his book, Superhero Ethics. That was the basis of our last conversation together, which I encourage everyone to check out. Today, our conversation will be based on Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America and some of Travis's thoughts on the lessons we can draw from it. Travis, welcome back to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me on the show again, Alex. Glad to be here. And it's great to have you on. So Travis, as you know, in each of our episodes, we start with a question and go where the answers and conversation takes us. Today, our question is, the tyranny of which majority, which is kind of like a fun gateway to explore some Alexis de Tocqueville and how you're connecting that with your ideas and some of the things you're exploring with students right now. So where I'd like to start is before we jump right into details and specific context, just as sort of like a general introduction to some of our listeners who might be unfamiliar, what is democracy in America? And why do you think it is worth the read and worth the attention from Alexis de Tocqueville? Right. You got to make, you got to really sell it if it's over 600 pages, right? Um, no, it's um, this fabulous book written uh, after uh, Tocqueville had visited America uh, with a pit stops in Canada too, actually, um, in 1831. And volume one was published in 1835 and volume two in 1840. Uh, and uh, he tried to give an account of the American regime as he found it at the time. Uh, but he wrote it in a way that wasn't merely expository. In fact, often the expository sections are criticized for uh, being less than simply objective. Uh, but that's because he's sort of a classical political scientist in the sense that he doesn't really believe in the fact-value distinction. Uh, political science, political philosophy is inherently normative. And so it's a book that mixes uh, expository or empirical descriptions of things, uh, with critical analyses, with some prognoses and some predictions. And it has a fair amount of prescience to it, it seems. Uh, it's also a book that defies easy placement on a left-right spectrum uh, because it strives to be philosophical rather than ideological. So uh, part of what makes that uh, a great thing about it is that um, almost anybody can find things in it they like and finds that they disagree with. Uh, and he's somebody who um, wasn't just the uh, armchair philosopher. He went and did field work, as it were, to write this book, uh, went and conducted lots of interviews, uh, traveled all around. Uh, he's somebody for whom, therefore, sort of the empirical political science and the philosophical political theory uh, side of things, which are often in the academy today, carved off as if they were uh, separate from each other. Uh, he, you see them united in his thought. You see somebody who can uh, write uh, with great familiarity of the with the classical tradition, as well as being learned in uh, modern traditions and biblical traditions, and he and he synthesizes those. I guess I'll wrap with that, but there's there's plenty of good reasons why when I, I tell my students, as I will be again this fall, that it's a good book for us to read, uh, that that it's going to you know it, it it's familiar to us enough. We more or less, I think, live in the kind of future that uh, he was anticipating or possibly envisioning. Um, and yet, at the same time, the society he's describing is distant enough from us that it no longer exactly replicates us as as we are today. So it's familiar and strange at the same time. It is uh, exciting and uh, can be also disturbing at the same time. And before we get into some of the specific concepts, just to tie off that sort of 
you know, us, us selling the, the book, if you will, and the work. So it sounds like you're saying it's not only relevant for the time he was writing for. So it's interesting like that in and of itself, but also at the same time, like you said, it's also quite relevant to, to understanding today and, and thinking about so, some of the same concepts applied to today's situations as well, right? Right. So that when we can think analogically, we can see, oh, look how this uh, might be relevant to us today. And and sometimes, you know, he, he gets he gets some things uh eerily uh right and other times you know he misses the mark or his his predictions are off and we can ask uh what are the reasons for that as well okay so there's definitely as you said uh is when we get to this length of book it's only fair to say that there's definitely a lot going on in there and back back to our question today you know the, the tyranny of the majority sort of discussion or the tyranny of, of which majority um now i want to dive into that so before we and i'd actually like to start like this before we get to the tyranny part of our question i want to stop with Tocqueville's understanding of the majority, and I know this is important to you. So why, why do you think it's so important that he stresses that the majority is mostly made up of sort of like that average person sincerely desiring to do good? Like, why should we start there? Because I know you often like to start with what he means by the majority. That's right. And he gives us his own definition on the first page of the second part of the first volume. You might say right in the middle of the book or the first part of the book when it came out. Um, today, when we talk about or hear people talk about the tyranny of the majority, often it's put in terms of one kind of identity group that has a larger population that is perceived as dominating and oppressing some other identity groups that are smaller in size. Uh, and, and what's interesting is when you see how uh, Tocqueville is going to describe the majority that makes up the America that he observes, and he does, it's worth not, uh, noting, that uh, he emphasizes throughout the book that when he's talking about um, uh, American Americans, he's mainly talking about as he finds them in the free states of the North. He has treatments of uh, the slave slaveholding states in the South, uh, and uh, he uh, calls them uh, straightforwardly evil. He he um, is. He says that the Anglo-Americans proved to be the greediest people in the history of the world. This is in chapter 10 of part two of volume one. Uh, and he anticipates that unless uh, slavery is abolished, that there will be an uprising and a potential race war and another uh, and a great deal of bloodshed. Um, and so uh, he's anticipating that a generation uh, before the civil war breaks out. Um, and so uh, for, the, for the sake of the rest of his analysis though, um, he's speaking about the majority of people in a way that cuts across identity groups. He's not talking about people in those terms. He's talking about us uh, on the basis of, let's say, a certain kind of psychological profile, right? Or socioeconomic uh, situation or um, mores, people's uh, behaviors and attitudes and sentiments. They cut across identity groups, and he wants to sort of figure out what's what's the uh, what's most of America made up like, or most of democratic society made up like. And I'll, I'll even quote this one passage. It's probably the only one I'll quote today. So, um, the majority is composed principally of peaceful citizens who, either by taste or by interest, sincerely desire the good of the country. And so this is the beginning of the part of the book where uh, toward the end of the part of the book, he's actually going to talk about the tyranny of the majority as one of what I refer to as the three big bads in this book. And I'm sure we'll get to the other two. Uh, uh, the second one that he raises at the end of part two of volume two is what he calls industrial aristocracy. Uh, and the one that he discusses at great length in part four of volume two is what he calls soft or mild despotism. Uh, and often when people read the book, especially when they read how things, arguments seem to change from volume one to volume two, volume one, he's kind of positive in attitude and does his best to sort of give the uh, best possible portrait of American democracy. And then the second volume gets increasingly bleak. Uh, and he ends with this conclusion regarding the possibility of what he calls soft despotism. And it's often regarded that maybe he changed his mind. Maybe he thought that uh, tyranny majority was the thing to be worried about in 1835, but come 1840, no, no, it's soft despotism. He's changed some of it. But uh, I, I, you know, and, and then, as I said, there's this other thing that he throws in there called industrial aristocracy. He also has a passing reference to the possibility of some sort of military coup. So there are a variety of ways in which democracy might turn out badly. And the question is, are they, how, how different are they from each other? So I'll get to that probably later on. Let me back up again a bit and let's inspect 
this definition he gives us of the majority, however. Right. I think you're right, Alex. How did you describe the people you said? Well, it's it's more the idea that, as you said, it's not like some sort of big group trying to oppress another. It's it's this idea that, you know, the average person is generally sincere in their life. They desire for the good. That could be the majority that actually ends up being tyrannical. That's what I think is interesting there. Pretty, pretty describing pretty decent folk. Right. And or, ordinary, ordinary people making their ordinary way through ordinary lives, but in large enough numbers. Um, could still, uh, as we'll see as the argument develops, could, as we're uh, in the aggregate, uh, come to behave in or rule in or demand to be ruled in uh, a tyrannical or despotical way. Um, he says that in, in uh, the, the sovereignty of the people is, the, is, a, is sort of the fundamental principle of American democratic society. And throughout the book, he points out that the sovereignty of the people is something that is regarded as absolute, uh, that there's nothing it can't do. The sovereignty of the people uh, could, could be capable of everything, he says. Uh, and the only thing that stands against that are you know, individual rights or the rights of associations and so forth. Um, but the majority of people that... Uh, he sort of introduces in this sort of in passing way at the beginning of the book, but uh, leaves it to you to realize that they're the majority you might be concerned about by the end of volume one. Right. They're peaceful citizens. These are not, these are not warmongers, right? These are not people inclined to, to violence. These are not people who are out to do each other harm, right? Uh, they're peaceful. Um, he says, either by taste or by interest, sincerely desire the good of the country. So this taste or interest part fascinates me. Um, it means they're not motivated by you know, glory seeking. They're not really motivated by concerns some people might have about uh, zeal or piety or godliness. Um, it's, it's not really a matter of rational thought either. However, it's it's something that they just sort of have a temperamental inclination to. It's, it fits it fits their sentiments. Um, it is the kind of thing that is not really rational or irrational, but you might say is irrational. You know, your tastes may be in matter of indifference uh, and and not really something that uh, is in defiance of reason or deduced by reason. Um, or by interest, right? And so one of the things that he points out about modern democratic people in commercial society is that we tend just to be making the best decisions we can on the basis of our partial knowledge and our inclinations of what's going to benefit us, right? And usually in terms of material well-being is the terms that he's considered. So most of the interests people have, they just they want to be comfortable. They want to, they want to be prosperous. They want to you know, be safe. You know, and uh, and and so you know, again, what, what what to most of us sound like ordinary folk. These are not people. They're not. They're not sacrificing, right? To to be motivated by their interests. They're not doing it out of a sense of duty. Uh, they're not doing it uh, on account of some higher calling or deep principles. Mostly, it's well, they 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 behave in this way. They render their judgments. They give their approvals or their disapprovals on the basis of pretty ordinary interest. Um, and they sincerely desire the good of the country. So uh, sincerely on one side means they're not like duplicitous, right? They're not, you know, dissembling. There's not a grand conspiracy here that in secret, they're trying to work their power over the rest. Um, so there's that side of sincerely. Uh, but there's also the sense in which you might say that people who are too sincere sometimes are also naive. Uh, and that, I think, fits together with it's a sincere desire, right? Um, if we're governed by our desires, that's, that may not be most prudent, right? People who are governed by their desires are governed by their hopes and their fears. People who are governed by their desires might be inclined to engage in wishful thinking, or uh, on the flip side of wishful thinking, you know, go into crisis mode, right? Uh, and so, it sincerely desire the good of the country. I'll wrap here. I'm sorry, there's a, there's a bunch of bits here, and I feel like 
giving homiletics. It's all good. No, this is good stuff. I think it's really exploring. It's continue, please. The good of the country. Um, there's a element of that. I mean, first off, it, it means that they think that what they're doing is generally in the common good, right? They're not, they don't see themselves even right. Here's the important thing. No matter how partisan they might actually be. And, and one of Tocqueville's teachings is that every, there's always partisanship, right? There's no, there's no post-partisanship. Uh, there's no non-partisanship. It's which parties are we talking about? And there's different levels at which we can speak about the parties to be found among human beings, not just, you know, which not, not just political parties. Uh, that's the sort of, uh, that's, a, that's not even the highest level of parties or the deepest. Um, but that they think that what they recommend is for the good of all, right? So even when you got two sides who are disagreeing with each other about what's necessary for the good of the country, neither side thinks of themselves as being tribal. Neither side thinks of themselves as simply looking out to uh, help their friends and harm their enemies. They all think that their perspective, their tastes and inclinations and interests are also coincidental with the good of the country. Right. No one's a villain in their own story, right? It's always somebody heading for the good in their own mind. And then the last thing I would add, Alex, is that this emphasis on the country, however, does mean that there might be a tendency toward among the majority of people, a tendency toward maybe collectivist thinking is too strong, too strong. But that when thinking, um, uh, uh, when, when thinking about politics, uh, they are more inclined to regard their positions as something that pertains to them as members of the society, right? And that what they want is for people to have the interests of society as a whole in mind and not simply be acting in a private or selfish way. Uh, and so that's, again, like all these elements of this, this is one of those passages I just love unpacking because every one of these elements has sort of a positive side and a potentially negative or darker side to it. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a simple sentence that has a lot of complicated factors in it. Uh, and it's one of those things where you read it for the first time and you go, oh, we were ordinary, nice people. And then you get later on in the book, you go, wait a second, he's going to say the majority could be tyrannical. And you go back and you revisit the sentence and you say, oh, I can kind of see what it would mean for these people as were despite themselves, you know, despite their inclinations, tastes and interests to behave and to become more tyrannical, to exert the, to seek to exert the power of the sovereign people, right, in a fashion that is tyrannical, which is to say more than anything else, that has contempt for, for people's rights. And I absolutely agree with you. Like, it's very important to unpack just that idea of what the majority exactly is. And, and what I want to do is actually get right into connecting that up with what you touched on before, but now we can get into it, which is this idea of sort of, as you kind of say, the, the three big bads, if you will, when we connect this idea of the majority to them. And you noted... Um, the tyranny of the majority, soft despotism, or some call that soft tyranny, and then the this idea of the industrial aristocracy. So, of course, there's lots of ways we can go, and, ex and there's lots of depth we can get into with each of these. But, but at a high level, why don't you tour us through each of those and why why they're a little bit different? We'll talk about how they're they're applied later. But what is meant by each of these three categories at a high level? So, the this tyranny of the majority um, is is. As, as I said, right, the, uh, the the sovereignty of the people is the sort of fundamental principle on which democratic society is established. Uh, from a from a perspective of classical political science, there's a recognition that you know we're, this, this is called the the claim of consent, as if consent is the basis, the legitimate basis of government, uh, and democracy is principally based on that, as opposed to say regimes that are premised on the rule of the wise or the rule of the noble or the rule of the elder, or the rule of the pious, or the godly, um, and so forth, right? And all of these still remain relevant uh, in even democratic society in a certain way, because they're sort of, from a classical perspective, parts of the permanent human condition that we are inclined to recognize that each of these claims has some legitimacy, even if we don't want to legitimate them right. formally in the institutions of government. So even among a democratic people, let's say you might elect somebody because you like their last name, right? They come from a good family. That could happen. Mm -hmm. uh, or you might believe, for example, that the people who are especially righteous should have more authority, right? Um, uh, but the, the official claim to rule is based on consent. 
Uh, now, there's an understanding in classical political science that the, the, the rule of the majority is really just the rule of the greater number in the most sort of direct sense. <laughs> there's more of us than there are of you. What you're going to do about it, right? Uh, and so that the rule of the many is a rule by force in principle. Uh, but we democratic people don't like to think of it that way or not like to think of it that way too plainly too often. And we like to add a moral gloss to the rule of the majority. And Tocqueville says that the rule of the majority gets its moral gloss because of the democratic principle. We like to fancy our intellects equal. We like to imagine, he, he says you, you, don't, you don't really need to believe in the equality. It's enough to feign belief in the equality. And there are all kinds of reasons why people might agree to feign the belief in equality. He calls it a fancied or an imagined equality of intellect. The fact that uh, intellects are not equal is, is the reason why there will always be inequalities of wealth wherever there's freedom. Uh, and so there's always going to be a rich and a poor element, even in a free society that aims at equality, he'll argue. Uh, but, um, so we, we, we like to say that, you know, the side that's got the most brains on it is probably the smarter side, the side that's got the most agreement to it. Therefore, uh, if all brains are equal, the brainier side is, is preferable. It's just a <laughs> sort of, the, and therefore, uh, heating the, heating the, the brainier side, the side that more of us agree with. Uh, makes sense to democratic people, although they're always trying to persuade people and change their mind and get them to think something different. And we'll talk about how when people change their minds or this when with the prevailing view of society changes, how very quickly, all of a sudden, people who would never have believed whatever is the new prevailing opinion before suddenly affirm the new opinion as if it must be the right and the true view. He's astonished in particular by the degree to which uh, how shifting the prevailing view can be, but how how much how ad, ad, how much people would adhere, ad, adhere to it once it is determined to be the prevailing view, and how little toleration, how little tolerance the people that hold the prevailing view have for those who dissent, and they they aren't happy with you just not going along and saying you do your thing, I, I'll do my thing, you think your thing, I'll think my no no the majority really really he says it goes straight for the soul he they want you not just to obey the majority wants you to agree. Go straight for your soul, he says. And so, uh, right. Uh, the, so what you have is a system of government in which when all the branches of government are dependent on the will of the people, and there are no, as in pre-modern times, independent uh, sovereign bodies within a mixed regime that can't be held accountable by the people, right? Say there's a church authority that is its own authority and in its own realm, and whatever the people think about it, they're still their authority or the royal or whatever, right? In a democratic society, especially in the American version of it, he says everything is dependent on the will of the people. And so it's entirely possible, and that even includes the Supreme Court. In the end, the Supreme Court justices are not going in a systematic fashion to defy the majority will of the people. And they know that they'd be in trouble too, right? Those, you know, the various branches of government, are, are none of them are supreme. The, the supreme power is found in the people. And all the branches of government are uh, effectively needing to uh, be uh, in conformity with in, in conformity with the will of the people. Uh, the problem is that you know, uh, and he says you know the American government is wisely uh, comprised of a bunch of competing elements that also need to go to the ballot box regularly, most of them, uh, and so it's very difficult for any one party or any one view to establish itself as the prevailing view across all the branches or all the arms of government. Uh, but he does say there's a, there's, there's a problem with the American regime that nothing can guarantee against the possibility that there might become a kind of one party rule that could be entrenched and made permanent. There's no guarantee against that. Now, part of me here is the Godfather character in my head saying, well, what kind of guarantee can I give you? Um, maybe exactly right. Uh, but um, th this uh, tyranny of the majority that can happen would be what if you know, a certain way of, of thinking, based on what he takes to be the trajectory of American character ideas, um, 
priorities, uh, goods, uh, if it was able to uh, have all the levers of power uh, in its hands, um, there are not everybody's like the majority. Keep that in mind. That's why they're only a majority. There are all kinds of people who uh, dissent, uh, for better or for worse, or di differ from this character that he's given the majority. That's not everybody. Uh, and um, while he notices in the early 19th century, Americans have a real Republican spirit to them in a, with a small R sense, right? They're active citizens, right? Uh, and they also very strongly believe in uh, the importance of defending people's rights. Uh, that if it were the case that instead over time, uh, that, that sort of small R republicanism were to wane and people became more passive subjects rather than active citizens, um, if they were no longer motivated by a, a, a strong sense of, you talked about the religiosity of Americans, a belief that there's something more and bigger than politics uh, and, and there are truths beyond uh, this world. Uh, that tr are transcendent and, and superior to political claims, if people uh, become no longer really concerned about, uh, uh, what's, the, what's the phrase, sacred honor, but instead are only concerned with praise and blame and a democratic uh, criterion, um, if they uh, are really just governed by their interests and their tastes in this democratic way, uh, that they could impose themselves on those who aren't quite like them, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that could mean um, uh, finding that uh, when, when, when people uh, wish to defend their rights, uphold their rights, preserve their rights uh, against the uh, majority, the majority will regard them as horribly mistaken and, and terribly wrong and bad, and that it would be right instead for the majority, the sovereign majority, uh, which believes itself and potent, potentially omnipotent, uh, and, the, and it's right to, and capable, has the power to do anything, uh, to no longer, you know, have that uh, character that he describes him as having his own time, and instead become tyrannical in that way. And how and how do we and how do we then shift into the, this idea of like soft despotism? So we did a great job there exploring like the tyranny of majority. That's one big bad, as you like to say. Then we get this idea of, of, of soft despotism. So how is this different, and how how are they how how do we connect these two ideas together as well? So my argument is I'm on the side of those who interpret the text to say they're not really that different, but that soft despotism is sort of an evolution of Tocqueville's thought regarding what it would really mean for the majority, as he's described it, to become tyrannical. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the things that I might mention um, is that, and he mentions this in the, this comes up in the chapter on soft despotism, or the part four of volume two is where he discusses soft despotism at great length, the immense tutelary state the, of administrative concentration. Uh, and, um, and so uh, he mentions in chapter four of part four of volume two, that uh, Americans got their idea, or modern Democrats, of which Americans he takes to be the premier example in his time, got their idea of individual rights. Actually, he argues, and the Tocqueville is kind of interesting in this way because it's not what everybody says, um, that, they, that they understand their rights as sort of an aristocratic inheritance, but they've been universalized. And that uh, you take the rights of the English aristocracy and you, you presume that everybody gets to have those kinds of uh, um, privileges is the right word, like literally the right word. Uh, and that, you know, the, you know, to have a right means that uh, there are things that I get to do and you can't stop me because it belongs to me to get to do them as the kind of being that I am or the kind of, kind of person I am, the role I have. Or it means uh, there are things you can't make me do. Or it means there are things that belong to me and you can't take them away from me, right? There's these kind of versions of you can't make me or you can't stop me, whether it's these are things I get to say, get to do, get to have, you know, I get to do this, you can't stop me, you can't make me do something else. And so this is, of course, you know, how quarrels between the nobles and the court uh, age old, uh, you know, there are things that the aristocrats could say the lords and could say that the 
crown can't make them or can't can't force them or can't stop them. Um, and they could belong to other uh, other parts of society, like to localities. I mean, federalism is in part a way of incorporating a version of that in modern uh, constitutional setting. Um, uh, other kinds of associations, as I said, like churches or professional guilds or something, might have their own uh, prerogatives, privileges, rights. Uh, and the idea of modern liberal democracy, Tocqueville says this, he, he's sort of rejecting the classical liberal view that you get in, say, your Hobbes or your Locke, that starts from a very sort of abstract theory, that starts with abstract principles uh, in imaginary settings, like a so-called state of nature, from which absolute liberty and absolute equality are declared, posited, uh, assumed, and from there, on the basis of consent only, uh, and originally a universal or a unanimous consent to start, uh, people's liberties get restricted, right? So Tocqueville's coming at it from a more historical perspective, a more empirical perspective than this kind of ahistorical abstraction that we're used to from, say, John Locke. Uh, John Locke, John Locke, of course, himself knew it was a fiction, but he thought it was the best fiction to tell, you know, the, 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 the best story for us to move forward on the basis of. Um, and so, um, in order for uh, rights to be upheld, even if they're democratic, and then in principle belong to everybody, um, it has to be the case that A, the, the government respects them, right? Uh, and that, that means, however, because the people are really sovereign, it means that the people have to expect and demand that the government respect the rights of individuals and associations. Uh, and however, there's always going to be a temptation on the part of whoever is responsible for the administration of government, especially because that's where ambitious people often go. Ambitious people like to get political power, uh, and they might be inclined to disregard uh, some people's rights. Uh, um, but also that majority, that majority might decide that for the sake of what it takes to be the common good, what it takes to be the good of the country, right, especially as it pertains to their material well-being, uh, that maybe uh, rights shouldn't be respected. In fact, maybe we should regard the people who you know, uh, insist upon their rights as if they're dangerous. People who insist upon their rights are irrational, are in some way perceived to be a threat to the good of the country. And therefore, should the majority come to be of that persuasion, uh, they could be very glad to have whether particular ambitious peoples or an entire state apparatus that on their behalf ever more works to erode the rights of individuals. And unless individuals are somehow capable of standing up against the state uh, or in their associations able to marshal enough, or they've got lawyers and courts that are willing to respect them too, that's also essential. If the lawyers, if the, if the lawyers have given up on defending the people's individual rights, then forget it. Uh, if the courts are going to overrule them, forget it. Um, but uh, that um, the problem is modern commercial society, modern secular technological, commercial, liberal, democratic society has the tendency, Tocqueville says, to bring about what he calls individualism. And when he says individualism, he doesn't mean what, say, talk radio means by, you know, the pull yourself up by your bootstraps, rugged individual, not, not individuality, yeah, but, but rather the fact that people get isolated from each other, uh, that they start... Um, uh, leading private lives, concerned with their personal goods, uh, that they forego political involvement, rules of citi active citizenship, and would rather delegate politics ever more to administrators, clerks, and experts whom they've trusted to take care of all that on their behalf so that they can mind their own business and their private lives and the things that they happen to enjoy uh, and their own businesses, uh, their own careers. I think, yeah, I think Benjamin Costal was talking about like sort of the retreat into private life sort of thing, right? Right. And and so, again, this is something that has, you know, some reasons behind it that make sense. But overall, the tendency, the consequence of this is going to prove uh, concerning to Tocqueville, uh, because when people stop 
really getting engaged in taking responsibility for public business by actually being actively involved and taking their turns in public office, but instead delegate authority to professional politicians, career politicians and professional bureaucrats. Um, in Tocqueville's time, he's really astonished and amazed by how Americans all get involved in politics, right? That everyone, everyone's probably going to take a turn holding some public office and nobody makes a career out of it. Uh, but instead, he, he imagines instead people will get to the point in which the only political involvement that uh, the overwhelming majority of people will engage in is casting a ballot for who are going to be their schoolmasters for the next several years. And, and those people become increasingly interchangeable with each other over time. And so um, under these circumstances in which individualism has caused the deterioration of civil society, of civil associations, of political uh, activity. Uh, people have been glad to be relieved of the responsibility for actually having to engage in self-government, are glad to be relieved of having to exercise personal practical judgment because we have rules and procedures that are following. We come to really love universal rules that get applied to everybody at all the same. We love, as part of the love of equality, is that we want the rules to apply to everybody the same. We don't like it when we want to make a rule and there are some people who defect or dissent or, 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 or don't comply. Um, and so, uh, as and, and he says, the, the, of course, there will be some people who will be glad to to Take, take that responsibility from people and, and, and uh, rule on our behalf. But he doesn't really have, you know, he does talk about the occasional reference to really ambitious people, chiefs and princes, even democracies, even late modern democracies can have what he refers to as chiefs and princes, really ambitious people who might say exploit a crisis in order to aggrandize into themselves more and more power, if you could imagine such a thing. Um, but uh, generally speaking, it's because it's what the people come to want or prefer. Um, democratic people, he says, are, are, don't have a very good long-term judgment, right? They will make uh, what looks like it's the convenient decision now, but in a way that they're going to regret later, right? Or they risk regret regretting later, especially in a time of crisis. You know, that's really concerning in a time of crisis that out of their ignorance and out of their haste uh, and out of their... Uh, uh, they're concerned for their material well-being that they might, you know, uh, make some decision that will prove very detrimental, ruinous, miserable down the road. But it seemed to make sense to their sentiments and passions at the time. I'm just going to stop us right there because we we have to take a quick break, but we'll jump back into this right after that. So everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Travis Smith today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Ben Hobbs, Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. Listen to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Travis Smith today. So, Travis, before before uh, well, the first half was great overall. I always like to say to our guests because it because it often is, of course. But then, right at the end of the first half, we were just in the middle of our general exploration of this idea of, of soft despotism. But one thing I kind of want to throw back at you as I was listening to you unpack that is like is as you said you know, one of the trains of thought you were on was this idea that that eventually, you know, there's a retreat into private life and then people are sort of passively happy to be to be ruled, even though it might not be with a club. It could be by administration or sort of like this passive tier majority. And that's what I think is very interesting about that whole point, right, is that you can have a form of despotism or or that keyword tyranny w without the club. And I think that's a very important part of, of the whole thing you were exploring there. Yeah, he says something along the lines of you have an entire population of people who have no no longer any ability to resist the decision of a clerk. Right, right. That's that's an excellent way to summarize it. That's pretty much it, right? And and so this individualism makes people uh, weak and and uh, sort of like the the. Uh, the Reformation declared that every individual stands alone before God and abolish the intermediary body of the church as something that might intercede on your behalf. You get this Hobbesian idea that, no, every individual stands directly before the vast, overwhelming authority of the sovereign, right? And so 
uh, there's a real what you're going to do about it. Uh, Locke, Locke points this out, right? That it's one thing for you to have a thousand people and everyone's out for themselves, which is another thing for you to find yourself uh, confronted by the power of 1,000 people united against you. And, and in an age of social media, we all know what this is like to feel like you're the only one who's dissenting. Um, <laughs> this is true, yeah. Uh, uh, and and how and how 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 much social media really contributes to this sort of praise and shame and blame game to destroy people's reputation unless they conform to what is the prevailing opinion or the correct hashtag. Um, but right, so you know, in, in this condition of of of, and he also right, this people are glad to have. He says generally people people are glad to have. Uh, the state take care of them and protect them and make decisions on their behalf. And increasingly, as the state, as the, as the study becomes larger and larger and larger, the inability of any given person to actually be able to get the experiences necessary in order to render good judgments as a political actor or to know which policies they, to, to recommend or prefer gets harder and harder for everybody, more and more difficult. And so the inclination to want to trust that to the fewer people who have a lot more information than you do and a lot more expertise than you do is something that it seems to you know, make sense to people. Um, and so long as, uh, and this is what the, the despotism he describes is right. It's soft. It's mild. He says it's, it's debasing. It's dehumanizing. It renders us weak and servile. But it's not cruel. It's not so dangerous and harsh. It doesn't. It's not uh, um, right. It's not. Uh, it's consistent with that peaceful quality that the that the majority wants, right? It 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 wants to it wants to convert you or absorb you or assimilate you uh, rather than destroy you. And as you're, as you're sort of saying there as well, like, you know, the, the idea that it becomes a little more systematic, you know, and, and the, the tying that back to the idea of the, the retreat to private life. I mean, the, the, Tocqueville was writing at a certain point in, in history where he would observe a certain level of general wealth. But if we, as you say, this is very relevant today when we think about it, too. So when we speed to 2021, that the trappings of private life and the ability to retreat into it and sort of the comfort by simply retreating to it. And as you said, um, being more individualistic in the sense you were describing is a lot easier to do and a lot more comforting in the sense, right? Especially as on the economic side, you know, our, our wealth, our general level of wealth increases and well-being increases. I mean, metaphorically speaking, some people wonder, again, metaphorically, why why should I leave my house? <laughs> That's kind of like a feeling that people have, right? Right. A sizable middle class is good for stable society. Tocqueville is concerned that, uh, that, uh, that, that sizable middle class but it could, um, could, could, be lost in time. This will lead to the discussion of industrial aristocracy. Well, let's get into that actually, yeah, because yeah. I want to, especially for the last swing of our conversation here, I think that's going to open up a lot of doors here. So we talked about the tyranny of the majority, soft despotism, the third big bad, this idea of the industrial aristocracy. And then you're, you're, I think that ties nicely into what you were talking about towards the end of what you were just saying there too, with this idea of there's a system and there's a sort of a system that one can get absorbed into. So how do we connect all this together with the industrial, industrial aristocracy point? Sure. One thing to note is that um, Tocqueville does not prioritize economics. He has a handful of chapters that are deal with economics, but it's not, he's not somebody who is principally thinking about economics. Um, partly because I think he, 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 he tells you uh, that he specifically wants to, 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 to talk less about the things that everybody else is talking about and be more critical of the things that everybody else is ready to embrace. And so he would rather talk more about uh, ideas and sentiments and mores, uh, character, questions of ethics, then uh, questions of economics. Um, economics uh, is not to say because he's you know against you know modern commercial society in principle. It's not because he's against increased prosperity and well-being and the reduction in suffering. That comes with a lot of his, a lot of the time he's like you know what everybody else is already praising that enough. I don't need to praise. Generally speaking, he says I'm more critical of democracy than I'm actually critical of democracy. But it's because democracy of enough people who does not do nothing but praise democracy. What democracy needs is somebody who's going to give it a friendly criticism. So he takes up that role. Um, and so when it comes to economics, um, it's not his top priority. Also, this is consistent with him being sort of, as I said before, informed by classical political philosophy that always remembers that wealth is an instrumental good. 
uh, that that wealth is a good of the body and not a good of the soul, and therefore a lesser good and not a higher good. It always should have higher purposes toward which it is directed and is not a good in itself. And a society that treats wealth as if it were good in itself is going to be a society that makes itself more and more miserable, even as it succeeds at the thing it cares about, right? And so that's worth keeping in mind. Um, he... Um, he uh, is uh, other, other works of his, especially the recollections, make it clear that he's no friend of, of, of socialists and communists, uh, even though for his own time, despite his aristocratic uh, last name, he's a liberal. Um, he uh, is fully aware of a lot of the, the criticisms that, that uh, will be levied against capitalism by its critics. But of course, so is Adam Smith, right? Adam Smith anticipated a great number of the criticisms that the communists would levy against uh, capitalism too in the end, right? Um, but the uh, he, he does have this one chapter, and it's only a few pages long, on what he calls the possibility of an aristocracy arising among uh, industrial society. Now, here he says aristocracy. It's kind of given away the fact that usually when he talks about aristocracy, he knows that so-called aristocracies are really just oligarchies. Right, the the industrial aristocracy would not deserve the name aristocracy. It would just be the rule of the rich over the poor for the sake of the rich. I mean, the classic definition of oligarchy. This is worth noting because throughout Volume One, he talks about contrasting democracy and aristocracy a lot. But he sort of here's a way of recognizing most of the time when he's talking about aristocracy in pre-modern society, even when he gives it sort of a romantic you know, tinge and speaks a little too idealistically about the best version of aristocracy in its long gone heyday, almost Disney-fies it. I joke sometimes with my students, you know, it's like the Arendelle version of aristocracy that he describes sometimes. It's a little too picturesque. That he knows he knows the reality of so-called aristocracies are that they're they're oligarchies. Um, but he is in agreement with the anticipation of the possibility that the concentration of great wealth, and as I said, you'll never get rid of uh, the distinction between rich and poor. So he's in agreement with the classics on that, no matter how much equality we establish among other, ourselves among other aspects of our lives, or how much we fancy ourselves to be equals even when we're not. Um, but there are going to be some people who are brilliant. Uh, and, and as a result of their brilliance in a society that is principally dedicated to the pursuit of wealth, there are going to be a number of people who are very, very good at making lots and lots of money. And what's nice also, however, that shows he's not you know, totally in agreement with the criticism of capitalism as an ism, is he recognizes that by and large, uh, most of it's honest, decent money making. Right, that most people who succeed in business are able to succeed in business because they offer goods and services that other people genuinely want, and they're able to run a business in a fashion that's successful. It doesn't mean that they're a particularly virtuous person, right? Um, but but you know you don't have to go to the caricature of of the evil uh, bourgeoisie capitalist, you know. Monopoly man kind of guy in order to you know, decent respect for the pursuit of material well-being. The problem is capitalists can make an idol of it or a fetish of markets and, and economic privilege or economic rights and priorities. Right. Um, but, you know, he expects that there are going to be some uh, extremely successful, extremely wealthy industries. And increasingly, he, he agrees that, that the distinction between the rich and the poor uh, or the owner and the worker, he actually goes so far in this chapter to not use the word owner, rather he switches it even for master to really get the point across. Um, the masters and the workers who have their you know, arrangements officially on the basis of contracts, um, uh, will, the, the gap between them will become exceedingly vast. And like aristocrats, or so-called aristocrats, or like oligarchs, the owners don't really care that much for the workers. Right? But this indifference means it's also kind of like soft despotism in that they aren't, you know, um, it's not like the, the, the noble oppressing the base. Right. Or, or it's not like literal slave driving. That's not what he's trying to get at. He, he's not saying, yeah, they're, they're getting no pleasure out of uh, uh, bringing misery and they don't have a they don't have a theory of justice that they are right to dominate 
And, you know, there's all very you know, self-interested and, ra- you know, rationalized why their, their exploitation makes sense. But they don't, they, aren't out, they don't have it out for the workers. Uh, they just don't really care. Right. And so, again, like soft despotism, it can be um, it, it can be it can be hard, but not dangerous to be a worker in the industrial world. Um, uh, you'll get fired, but you won't get lashed, I guess, to put it in the way you were trying to put it earlier, if, I, if that makes sense. Um, uh, but this is <laughs> but he. He he returns to the topic. What's interesting to me about combining these three big bads, as I would, he returns to the topic of the role of industry uh, toward the end of the book in part four um, and talks about how uh, what you'll end up getting because you can't because because there will be successful businesses and rich industries uh, and. you'll simultaneously get the government will need to make use of them and would rather that they did the thing that they've become so successful at than doing it themselves. Right. And so, um, uh, the, 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 there's a certain kind of dependency that the massive state administrative structure will have on the most successful private businesses. But, you know, part of the deal is that it will also regulate them and it will also uh, set rules for them, right? And he says that the, the government becomes sort of the chief among the industrialists. And so you get uh, the pic- a picture of a kind of potentially corporate structure in which uh, he envisions, again, this is in 1840, envisions the collaboration, co-optation, uh, 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 um, combination of great, or let's say big business and big government. In other words, you have, like you were saying before, tying back to what you were saying before, like a system where you have the state and the industry, but each of them are playing a, a certain role in that system, as you were saying. And so um, he, he knows that this will never actually, he, he claims, <laughs> he claims that this will never transform itself into, a, into an actual aristocracy, right? Part of the book is him saying that, you know, democracy is what we're stuck with. The question is, is it going to be a good democracy or is it going to be a bad democracy? And the main criterion is, is it going to be one that that uh, that people retain their liberties and retain their rights? Uh, or is it going to be one in which uh, ever more so in, uh, rights and liberties are eroded and and people become more and more dependent and servile and and so forth? So um, he, he says the real the real alternatives in the end, he foresees are either this kind of servility or uh, or anarchy, uh, which is to say, in the end, he doesn't think that the Republican spirit is going to last forever. Right? So it's a republic if you can keep it, but you won't get to. It's sort of the, right. the glossy answer. You won't get to. Keep it for as long as you can or as well as you can. Um, and that, you know, it could be the case that, you know, that some kind of despotical arrangement that is consistent. Here's an important back thing to bring it back to the majority, consistent with what most people think they want and, and that they think they want it for the good of all. Right. Uh, they're, they're glad for it. Right. And of course, it's a tutelary state. So it teaches them to be glad for it. Uh, that that's really key, too. Right. Um, and. Uh, uh, or you know, there's a possibility of anarchy. There, there could be some kind of revolt, right? There, it could, it, it could all fall apart, and you could turn into. There are a number of reasons why he thinks that civil war could break out. As I said, the main thing he concerned was concerned about for a possible future civil war uh, was along race-based uh, right. line. Of course, yeah, at that time specifically, he was very, very prescient on that, as you were saying, among other things. Well, not only prescient on that, anticipating you know circumstances that would lead to the civil war. What's really uh, uh, impressive is to see that he he already explains what today gets called systemic racism. He knows that even the abolition of slavery is not going to suddenly magically make the races equal uh, in wealth or respect or authority. He knows that the legacy of slavery is going to be one that will uh, prove poisonous for the American polity for a long, long time to come. 
uh, and that uh, racial division and antagonism is not something that's going to just fade away. Uh, and so he would not be surprised that even in 2021, this is something that is of great concern uh, and great uh, uh, political uh, debate uh, today. He wouldn't be surprised at all. So, so yeah, on, the, on that last point, if you, if you go back to something like Plato's Republic, even Plato knows that in, in, the, in the course of the decay of the regimes, uh, when, when oligarchy is given way to democracy and democracy, Tocqueville totally agrees with, with Plato on this point, that democracy begins with the love of, of uh, freedom. Um, and, uh, that, and so they seek equality so that people, all people could be free. Right. But then that love of equality becomes a uh, a passion all of its own that's beyond explanation uh, and uh, is insatiable. And that in turn, the love of equality will make people uh, forfeit uh, their freedoms. Right. That, that's the logic of it. Now, in Plato's Republic, he says this can go in two ways. You can get the oligarchs who never go away because there's always rich people trying to find some way to consolidate their oligarchy so that some few might try to rule in perpetuity, right? Um, or you can get another revolution that leads, leads to tyranny outright, right? Um, and so the, the, risk, the risk of totalitarianism on the one side and authoritarianism, let's say, on the other side, if you wanted to make a distinction between them, uh, are, are of concern. And Tocqueville sort of has that concern. Now, what's, 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 what's refreshing? And maybe I'll wrap here. Uh, when, he, when he concludes the book in 1840, he says, if I thought everything was hopeless, I wouldn't have bothered to write this book. I would have just you know, kept my thoughts to myself or wrote my diary or something, right? And so the very fact that he thought it was worth writing this book uh, meant that he didn't think that fate was sealed. He didn't think that it was necessarily the case that, that we should just be doom and gloom and absolutely confident that everything's going to fall apart. But rather, he wants to remind people who have the benefits of free society, that have the privileges of individual rights, that have a healthy civil society, that have limited government, and, and who uh, um, you know, have a strong middle class in, this, as a, in a society and possibility of that kind of mobility to do everything they can to retain the character necessary in order to preserve it. And so he wasn't putting a death sentence on it. He wasn't you know, putting an end date to it. He knew that it was a perpetual struggle to try to keep uh, the character alive that was necessary, the spirit alive that was necessary in order to retain and preserve it. And so uh, as, as, as often as the case when I teach this book to my students nowadays, uh, there's going to be some people who are inclined to A, to get really upset with him and, and opposed to him and reject him out of hand uh, or like the things he dislikes or something, right? Or just think it's no longer relevant because it's it's no longer, because the world's not like that anymore. Uh, we have technology now that exceeds, you know, the uh, horses. Um, uh, there are other people who can read it and get really gloomy about it. And there's a there's a quality to Aristotle, to, to Tocqueville, that's trying to say, uh, you know, uh, cheer up, uh, be brave, uh, be proud of what you've got and stand up for it. Uh, and, 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 um, and, and that kind of thing, I have a positive message, uh, when he, when he closes the book. So it, I, it would be, uh, it would be unfair to Tocqueville for me not to remember and to remind, remind your listeners that as, as, as much as there's a degree of, um, uh, relevance to the text. Uh, let's make let's keep that relevant too. Right, and, and as our time does wind down here, we have some minutes left, but but not too much. Uh, you, you were talking about the point of of relevance toward the end of what you were saying there too. So I I, I don't want to leave the topic with both of us chatting here w without settling on essentially that. I mean, we talked about the th the three bads. We talked about the tyranny of the majority, soft despotism, industrial aristocracy, and and you were touching on a couple points about how we can relate what he was talking about and observing at the time to maybe some modern examples and things, but we didn't fully go into that. So as my last main question, I guess that's kind of what I want to ask you about is overall, you know, I, I know it's very simplistic to, to say this, but in a way what I'm trying to get at is if we were to take Tocqueville and like, you know, plop him down here in 2021 and ask him about those three bads. Um, we, 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 I have some ideas about it, but I'm obviously interested more in your thoughts here in this forum. So what do you think he would uh, observe about the world and 
maybe the current state of American democracy and society today in, in relation to those three bads? Um, uh, in the American context specifically, I think um, you would see that uh, the importance of federalism. Um, I think that, I mean, pl plopping them down into 2020, 2021, you're talking about one of the crisis situations. That, uh, right, so and, that's a good point so too, yeah. Instead of putting them in 2021, let's put them in, uh, how, 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 how hopeful should I be? 2022, 2025? at a time at which COVID is COVID times are over. Right. So let's, let's imagine COVID times are over. Uh, and, and what Tocqueville would be urging and be glad to see would be things like this. Um, all of the executive emergency powers that, uh, that centralized governments have uh, assumed during the crisis uh, that they've that they they forego them, right? They no longer exercise them. They renounce them. Emergency powers renounced. Uh, that um, uh, regular elections uh, that that people um, see have the real opportunity to continue uh, changing uh, majorities, right? So that no one party can make itself permanently in charge in any way. Uh, are back, right? And so that there's no concern that any centralization of power is also centralization of partisan power. Um, oh, one thing he'd really like to be glad to see would be a return to uh, free press, uh, one that is both not censored uh, and a free press that is genuinely critical of the government and not one that seems to be a cheerleader for the government. I mean, it seems like oftentimes that the only criticisms today's media has is the government's not authoritarian enough. Um, if you listen to the question periods these days. Um, and, that, that, and that it's diverse. The media should be diverse, right? That uh, is one of the things he praises about the media in his time is that there's a, there's a broadsheet from every perspective. Right, especially at that time, too. He, perhaps maybe the media he'd have you see not as an industrial aristocracy in and of itself when you think of the establishment media now, right? And what else? Uh, the economy, right? That, um, that right. Um, wouldn't it be amazing if, you know, the, the corporations that have, you know, secured obscene profits and, you know, uh, just decided to dedicate without having to be taxed more, but decided, you know, magnanimously dedicate to, you know, re refreshing, renewing uh, the, the, the community. But barring that, let's just let's just hope the middle class people come back and thrive and small businesses come back and thrive. Uh, let's hope that there is a, um, a rebound in civil society that instead of people get sick of having themselves stuck at home and being isolated and alone and you know, churches and other kinds of religious communities uh, have a revival and private charities have a revival and social clubs and institutions like that have a revival and that local communities start once again, really you know, taking care of their own and not all eyes are on the central government to be the, uh, everybody's benefactor, right? This is one of the things, Tocqueville would not be surprised watching today's news, not just in 2020, 2021. Tocqueville would not be surprised that in, for as long as I can remember now, you're notice that when you turn on the news, I won't mention a channel, you might guess which channel, but pretty much all the channels, there isn't a single story that comes on the news where they don't editorialize with the question, is the federal government doing enough to solve this problem? Right, right. right? You wouldn't be surprised by that. Um, but maybe, as I said, maybe we could see, you know, as a as a reaction to the isolation and the deterioration of mental health that's come with that, everything else, and people realize that being members of of uh, communities is, is is worthwhile and and a, and a part of the human condition that we ought to restore ourselves to for our own well being, even if it is a hassle and gets in the way of other priorities and amusements. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, there's a handful of things. If Tocqueville were to come back, that's that's the kind of society in Canada or the United States he would hope to see reestablished uh, following this crisis period in which there have been a number of things that are of concern uh, that have transpired, uh, and one must hope that uh, when emergencies are are over, 
uh, emergency measures also end. And I think that's actually an excellent place to push us into our formal wrap up. I mean, time really flies with this subject and uh, we've talked about a lot. I want to bring the conversation full circle, put a finer point on it, but I feel like we might need a part two of this conversation as well. So if you'd like, we can we can arrange that. But But for now, let me ask, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to here on what the tyranny of the majority really is and, you know, Tocqueville's thoughts on that. You know, in other words, if if we could sum up in one or two short takeaways, what do you ultimately want someone to grab from this conversation, everything we've explored? That there are risks involved in allowing people the free exercise of their rights. But there's a greater risk, a greater longer-term risk involved in wishing to see people's rights eroded or suppressed or denied because you think that's what will eliminate the risk. The society in which we have decided to forgo those rights in the name of safety or comfort or material well-being, uh, especially in the context of a crisis, uh, the, 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 the consequence, the result of that society, even though uh, you might be tempted to it, uh, is going to be a, a, a worse society for especially your children to be uh, to grow up in uh, than the one that allows that risk presently. I think that's an excellent place to leave it off for today, at least. Travis Smith, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task again. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure to be a part of the show. Thanks for having me back. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.